Hello, and welcome to episode 209 of the End Focus podcast. I'm your irregular host, Andrew Brown, and we are joined this week by our regular co-host, Sylvia Wassenaar. Hello, hello. And Rosalie, the little record girl. Hello. All right, so let's jump in with our updates from previous episodes. Rosalie has continued playing Dreamlight Valley, and she has some things new to tell us about it. Um, yeah, so it's got its first ever major update since it's, I mean, it's still in early access, so it's not technically out yet. Um, and they've added Scar from The Lion King, because why Why not? <laughs> uh, some people are annoyed because it's, they don't want the villains to be in it. And I think that's silly because they're the coolest characters. I think as long as we're not putting Frollo into the game, I think we're okay. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't see him uh, being there. I mean, people are still saying that, like, Scar is, like, one of the evilest ones, but I'm like... Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, he's a bad guy, sure. And, yeah, they, they pulled a lot of nazi imagery for his song which wasn't great no. oh but, yeah uh, yeah i mean like if it was like lady tremaine i might give you some side eye if you had her in town it's like wow <laughs> but, well there's already um mother Groth grothel uh from mother rapunzel Gothel, really yeah oh my okay Mother Grothel does ask you to do some quests, which are which are questionable, like uh, spying on the good characters. Uh, but w- <laughs> and she asks you questions, which you can be like, "Yeah, I like being evil," but you can also say the opposite. So there's like a villain's theme right does now. Does she so. gaslight you? She kind of just goes, "Yeah, okay." Whenever you come hang out with her, and then you stop hanging out with you, she says, "Like, oh, that was awful." <laughs> like she makes little comments. It's really funny. There's like a villain's theme right now so there used there was a pixar event on and there was a villains one because it's like halloween so and i just unlocked like the mirror from snow white from my wall which was really cool and the poison apple kind of insignia which you can use to edit on your clothes and things but an update for your companions and so now you can like pet them because people really wanted that <laughs> um and there's been bug fixes but there's two really hilarious ones they're not really bug fixes i guess they kind of are um donald duck doesn't go have a rager as much as he used to so sometimes walking in the background he just loses and go and then apparently that was getting really annoying so they've stopped the the rate that he gets annoyed and they've fixed mickey mouse's scary eyes and then there's all the general like stability issues and things but um yes it's still a fun time it doesn't it runs better on the pc than on the Switch, but I still like having it portably on the Switch, so I haven't got Scar yet though, but I, I will today. So let's move on with what we played this week. Okay, now we didn't play it, but uh, Persona 5 is finally out on Switch. Uh, I'm personally waiting to play it until after I finish Octopath Traveler, one giant RPG at a time. <laughs> uh, so I'll get to it in December, maybe January, sometime soon. Uh, but I know you both have played it. Uh, can you briefly talk about it? Oh, briefly. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Persona games, they're JRPGs that are set in like a modern time. Typically you play as uh, high school students. The Persona that you hear in the name is like, if you're familiar with JoJo, like Stan's. They're kind of like a manifestation of a person's sense of self and what they want to put out in the world, hence Persona. It plays a lot like Shin Megami Tensei, which is probably where I actually talked about Persona. So if you're familiar with that series, you'd be familiar with Persona to a certain degree, but honestly, I think most people would be familiar with Persona looking into SMT. (laughs) The more popular spinoff. Yeah, because uh, Persona is was originally a sub-series of SMT, but I think Persona 5 was the first one to just be a Persona game. Uh, you have a cast of characters. This cast is your party. The game is kind of divided up into chapters where each character has their own sort of dilemma and personal attachment to the current dungeon, which are called palaces. 
there's a, a bad guy in each of these uh, palaces that uh, are kind of more blatantly bad versions of the person in real life. It's like a sort of alternate universe where these personas manifest and these palaces and these palaces form because the bad guy kind of got out of control and had a distorted view on reality and that manifests in the metaverse, I think it's actually called, now that I think about it. Oh, yeah. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it was like before the Facebook yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Do, do these people at least have legs? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's running on the latest version. And there's the mementos as well, which is like a... Yeah, that's... Extra. That kind of resembles, like, Persona 3, in a way, where Mm -hmm. you had Tartarus, which was just like a never-ending, procedurally generated dungeon, and you just had to kind of make your way through the floors and get higher and higher. Mementos goes underground. It's based in the um, Tokyo underground train system and there's probably a specific name for it i don't know but uh, it represents like the collective unconscious of the uh, of society specifically tokyo which another mentionable thing is that this is set in tokyo uh you can go to shibuya and yeah well shibuya is just one place in it i mean even persona 5 royal added a new location as well I think you can go to Akihabara in this as well, which is in uh, Shinjuku. How, how much does Shibuya in Persona 5 resemble it in Tokyo Mirage Sessions? I mean, Shibuya, when people think of that, they just think of the scramble crossing. Mm-hmm. Which is definitely what TMS was pulling from. Yeah. Whereas Persona 5 goes a little bit more down like Central Street, which is where all the shops are. You can buy weapons and items. Oh, I love the weapon guy so much. Yeah. <laughs> He's really cool. The, the real Shibuya in Japan right now is playing the Persona 5 soundtrack. Yeah. I saw a TikTok of um, Anne's uh, English voice actor. She's currently in um, Shibuya and she was just walking through and just as she walked through, it happened to play the Persona music, so... So cool. <laughs> it does resemble a JRPG in like a, in a classical sense in many ways, but I think mm. Persona Five stands out just the style and presentation. Uh, of course, brilliant soundtrack. Oh yeah, the soundtrack is amazing. The user interface is has inspired like even um, Sakurai has said that you know he's just he just adores the user interface in Persona 5, and I tend to agree. It's really... It's a good way of being functional, but also just looks great at the same time. It's <laughs> really striking. Even, like, the menus, when when yeah. you talk to the gun guy and you pull different menus, it's like there's, like, a, a vector of him moving, and it'll just be him moving in different cooler positions, and it actually makes you enjoy going through, like, your inventory just to see all how they move and... It's so stylish. It's it's also they kind of deliberately um, like the main character's persona is based off of the book character, not the anime character Lupin, the the famous mm. thief. Awesome. So it's kind of yes, yeah, they draw a lot from that kind of stylistic thing of just being funky. Yeah. They call it the the Phantom Thieves, which is a from what I understand a literal translation of the word like kaito, which is what they ah. call in the Japanese version. It's like the gentleman thieves that you see yeah. in fiction. You know, like the nice suits and gloves and maybe a mask. There's a lot of allusions to masks in this because persona is, I think, Latin for mask. Oh. So this is probably the most literal game, but it's done <laughs> subtly. It's... um. A very long game. This is specifically Persona mm-hmm. 5 Royal, which adds a significant chunk of content. Uh, there's a part in the game where it kind of has a time skip, and Royal fills out this time skip. It's an entire in-game semester's worth of stuff happening. Uh, yeah, because I've only played the the original 
as it was, and I still don't want to play Royal because five it was fantastic, but it was very very long. Yeah, and I'm not mentally there to replay it just yet. I will, but um, it is very very long. It's the base game was eighty hours for me. Yeah, that sounds about right. Now, how much is that? Is like the narrative stuff versus the dungeon crawling because i i did play persona 4 on vita for a couple hours <laughs> and like in that couple hours was as long as it took me just to get to the first dungeon it was <laughs> it was a lot of watching days tick by on the calendar <laughs> up to that point i'd say all in all 50 50 wow um it, so, it is very visual just, novelly which you know yeah. might not be for everyone it makes replaying a new save really daunting because it's like a couple of hours before you get to your first dungeon yeah but there's um the social links so like there is a reason to Mm -hmm. play through it multiple times because you can't do the social links for every character like you're kind of locked in on certain decisions you can but you're probably not going to be able to on your first playthrough unless you do a walkthrough Mm. Um, because it's not just social links it's also uh, character stats not like health and whatever but more like confidence and intelligence and stuff like that uh, and all of that's increased in the real world like at school with these social links sometimes you need a certain level of a particular personality trait to progress with these social links so you can't really ignore them it is funny though that I I don't know if it was an original game, but in Royal you can go to the bathroom in the cafe where you're staying at and increase your stats there. Oh no, you <laughs> you, you check your stats there because you're contemplating. Uh, <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Oh, oh, I wonder if that's a homage to Catherine because same developers and you could like go into the bathroom. Yeah, and it, could it was be. like a thing. You don't see anything. <laughs> There's so many things to build your stats that I didn't even romance somebody in Persona 5. It was, like, too late. Yeah. So there was, like, a Valentine's Day scene, and it was just me and the, the guy hanging out. <laughs> and it was like, oops. Oh, yeah, but you can go all the way the other way and romance every possible romance option. Cause, yep. <laughs> yeah. That, you, you get your Does comeuppance. Does that give you a Witcher 3 scene? Yeah. There's also a weird thing where the first palace is, like, a horrible teacher who preys on teenage girls but there's two romanceable characters who are in fact adults and you are in fact a high school student and it's like okay <laughs> uh, yeah you don't have to romance them obviously and also i judge anybody who romances futaba because that is a sister relationship and it feels weird otherwise just putting that out there <laughs> yeah um to clarify not a biological sister situation but you have the same no caregiver. no <laughs> No, it's it, still, it still a dynamic to that's me. not healthy. There, there's a lot of questionable content in this. It's very of the time, mm. which is weird because it's not that old a game. <laughs> um, Atlas can be quite bad for that sometimes, sadly. Yeah. And it's also worth mentioning that, you know, content warning, it deals with some very heavy stuff in just the first mm-hmm. act. Oh, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think it, it handles its themes pretty well pretty maturely it has something to say the idea of going to these palaces and stealing the heart which you've probably heard of as the one of the taglines for the game basically makes these awful adults kind of fess up finally grow a Mm -hmm. conscience and go hey i did all this awful stuff please i need retribution and punishment in return it Which kind is of, very relevant. Yeah. But it also kind of deals with the idea of, you know, is is doing that to somebody morally, ethically mm-hmm. correct? I think it handles things better than 4 did in oh, that respect. Yeah, definitely. Uh, even though 4 is my favourite Persona game, uh, it Same. has a lot of problems. Which <laughs> yes. we'll talk about in January, I think it is. Oh, yeah. Is it January? Last I heard. Yeah. So many games coming out, like, starting next year, I get confused. (laughs) Yeah, honestly. But yeah, if you're looking for a huge time sink for a a game that's 
you know, pretty well polished. Uh, from what I hear, it runs really well on Switch. Uh, I don't have mm. any me. This would be the third time I'm buying the game, and I just can't <laughs> justify it because it's full price. If it were fifty bucks, absolutely, but it's a hundred Australian bucks. Oh. Yeah, no, it's a hard sell for me. If this is your first Persona game, it's worth mentioning that the Persona games aren't really connected. They're technically in the same world, but you don't need to have played three or four or one or two if they still exist. <laughs> yeah, I, I highly recommend it. This is the game that got me yeah. into JRPGs. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's recent. <laughs> I know. I think five months is seven, and that was like, what, 1998? <laughs> What did you do the first 30 years of your life? <laughs> what were you playing? Uh, I thought you were like Andy, you were just playing Street Fighter. <laughs> over and over. No, I fighting <laughs> games I'm also recently into. Now the big new release next week is Bayonetta 3, and I wanted to replay Bayonetta 1 and 2. Before that happened, and I believe Sylvie did as well. How far did you make on that, Sylvie? I got distracted. Um, I'm oh. going to try and at least play Bayonetta 1 this week. Well, I did manage to uh, find the time to replay them both. I wasn't sure if I would because uh, when I sat down to play Bayonetta 1, I was suddenly reminded of all the things in it that I don't like. <laughs> I will acknowledge that Bayonetta is a great character. Uh, she's so incredibly confident in everything she does and I think that's a great thing to see in this kind of game. Uh, it's a character action game so there's a really elaborate combo system you have to learn and you know you got your punch button and you got your kick button which is fairly typical for this kind of game. What makes it different is Bayonetta can actually equip any weapon on both her hands and on her feet including guns somehow. <laughs> Don't question it it's just how it works. We talked about this briefly a few episodes back about Bayonetta's sexuality. Uh, she is clearly enjoying herself in everything that she does, uh, mm. up to the point that when you finish off powerful enemies, it's actually called a climax. <laughs> yeah. I, I always like that specifically because there's nothing inherently wrong with someone, a character being sexual, but it definitely feels like she's in charge of how she is perceived so it feel it feels mm -hmm. empowering. It doesn't feel male gaze. -y. Well, it, did, it didn't for me anyway. I like because it doesn't. The ending credits have her like pole dancing, and I always thought I thought that was cool. <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't yeah. offended. I was like, oh, she's badass. So <laughs> same. I did play through Bayonetta one this time in the Princess Peach outfit, and it ah. uses the exact same animations that were in the base game, but uh, now she's in a mini skirt and a thong. Oh. And I I did feel that wearing that outfit versus the the skin tight cat suit she usually wears did feel a lot more male gazy. I don't know. Ah. I don't know how that works. I like that that was Nintendo's insistence as well. They're like, <laughs> yeah. no, it's Bayonetta, uh, make her sexy. That came from Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> uh, there are Nintendo costumes in the in the Nintendo versions of the Bayonetta games and including a Link costume and they originally had Bayonetta's Link costume have an undershirt underneath it. Nintendo higher-ups, I think it was actually Miyamoto specifically, uh, who requested them to actually remove the undershirt and just make her more sexy in the Link outfit. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, exact same poses, but just the fact that she's in a, a miniskirt and a thong, it, it really made the frequent pans across Bayonetta's butt feel <laughs> a lot more gratuitous than in, in the cat suit. That was just how I felt. <laughs> but uh, The character designs, which we're basically talking about now, are also really interesting. The, the I don't really remember feeling this way about Bayonetta's appearance in Smash Brothers. Maybe they changed it in Smash Brothers and I just never noticed, but... The character's arms and legs are just slightly too long, mm. <laughs> and if it's easiest to see in, in this first game, I think. It's just a really distinct design seeing them that way. And like in the first game, there's actually a child character that's pretty significant, and again, you just see how 
out of proportion everything is because the child is, looks like she's about two feet tall and everybody else is about 10 feet tall. It's very strange. <laughs> Just a, a really fun look. Very distinct in spite of the fact that the game is very much of the real is brown era. Everything is everything is desaturated and no color in anything. A lot of bloom in that game too, right? <sighs> Probably. I, I, I just try to absorb the bloom <laughs> but i'm also playing octopath traveler at the same time so maybe i'm just immune to to bloom when i'm playing that game just for fun you you can also see in this game's design that it was produced by sega because there are sega references all through it like the main currency of the game is halos which are dropped by bayonetta's angel enemies they're called halos but they're pretty clearly sonic rings uh, in the opening scene of Bayonetta 2, she's riding to the mountain that they're going to on top of a biplane, riding on its wings, just like Sonic does in the opening of Sonic 3. Uh, there's a grave at the beginning of the first game. The The funeral they're attending is for somebody named Eggman. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they refer to a reservation they stole from somebody named Alex the Kid, which was a, a more obscure early Sega platformer. <laughs> Uh, it's it's easy to forget that Sega was originally responsible for this game's existence. They they lost interest in funding it after the first game didn't do very well financially, but uh, then Nintendo stepped in, and that's how Bayonetta is now basically a, a Nintendo official character. <laughs> but very much this was a, a Sega project starting out, and <laughs> they're probably kicking themselves for letting it get away from them now. <laughs> but going into Bayonetta 1... I actually feel more positively about this game than uh, when I wrote these notes, but I'm going to stick with these notes. <laughs> I called it a crap game. <laughs> I, saw, I saw that. Yeah. Uh, I, I was surprised after playing both of these games. I actually wound up liking Bayonetta 1 more than I used to and Bayonetta 2 less than I used to. I, I still prefer the second one to the first one, but I, I appreciate the first one a little more. Uh, the combat in the first one is really good. That's always the thing that's held it through, especially Bayonetta's signature ability, Witch Time. Uh, if you press the right trigger button at almost any time, Bayonetta will dodge. And the later you dodge relative to an enemy's attack, then you can trigger an ability called Witch Time, where time will slow down all around Bayonetta, and it lets you get in a lot more attacks on enemies as they float through the air basically uh mastering which time is the main thing in the game like there's almost not a single fight where you're not taking advantage of which time uh, in some way having said that as good as the combat is you know the combos in equipping bayonetta with the different weapons that you unlock and uh, mastering which time there are a lot of places where, where the combat isn't so great especially the controls there is a lock-on button but it's assigned to the right like right bumper button and as i said you dodge with the right trigger button the left trigger in this game doesn't do a single goddamn thing and i don't <laughs> understand why the lock-on button isn't assigned to that <laughs> now when i first played this on xbox 360 and then i replayed it on switch when it first came out I was kind of stuck with the lock-on button being there, but now I can remap the Switch's buttons on the hardware level, like on the, on the top level on the dashboard. So I reassigned the right bumper button to the left trigger while playing this game and discovered that the lock-on really doesn't make that much of a difference. <laughs> uh, maybe I've just gotten too used to playing through the game without locking on to anything, but I really didn't feel that it helped me target specific enemies because... There's really never a point in the game where you're fighting that many enemies at once. Um, and I thought maybe it would make the camera behave a little better, but it really didn't seem to make any difference there either. So even with the lock-on button in a more convenient place, like a, on a button that is literally never used, that's in a much more comfortable place than the same place that I used to dodge, uh, it didn't seem to make any difference. <laughs> have, have either of you ever used the lock-on when you're playing Bayonetta. Didn't even know there was a lockdown, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> no, because, like, you're kind of killing everything left, right, and center. So, like, by the, I was... Yeah. If you're going to lock on something, it'd probably be dead two seconds later. <laughs> I don't remember ever using it. So there's a lock-on, but it's pretty pointless. Uh, as I mentioned, the camera 
and especially in Bayonetta 1, I felt this. Camera makes the game a lot harder than it really is because you will get attacked by enemies off screen a lot. <laughs> especially because you're often fighting in melee and you're fighting large groups of enemies. And it's a 3D game and it's a 3D free camera. There's no fixed camera angles. So you're often at the mercy of enemy attacks that you, you can't possibly see coming, and the, the camera is really no help here. And I especially felt this was a problem in the first game. The second game seemed to be a lot better about not having huge clumps of enemies coming at you from a camera angle that you literally can't see. Uh, there's a couple vehicle levels that are just, they're just bad. It's like, they're from a 3D platformer released in the year 2000. It's like, let's have a vehicle level just because, even though the rest of the game is not designed around vehicle levels. <laughs> it's just, there's a, a motorcycle level, which is like, feels it's pull, ripped straight out of Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> uh, the second motorcycle level is really cool. I won't, I won't mention it because it's, it's so cool. I want people to be surprised the first time they play it, but there is one vehicle level in the game that is pretty good. Uh, just how ridiculous it is. And then there's the uh, the Jet Harrier level where you're flying towards the city to stop the boss. And it's basically a really long recreation of the Sega game Space Harrier, which the game's, yeah. the game's creator, Hideki Kamiya, is a huge Space Harrier fan. So he's like, let's just remake Space Harrier for a level. <laughs> it's a terrible, it's a terrible level. <laughs> the camera is fixed to the perspective of the the harrier that you're flying on top of so when you press the dodge button and the harrier does a barrel roll you sp watch the camera spin 360 degrees and you're dodging every second or so to avoid all the crap on screen you will be motion sick by the time this level is over <laughs> it's just awful the gameplay, I feel, can be really unforgiving. Like, it, they just make a habit of this. There's introductory cutscenes for every new enemy type you encounter. On every single time this happens, the enemy attacks just as the cutscene ends. So before you're even ready for it, you've got something flying in your face. I think I got hit by an enemy attack every time that happened. <laughs> there are quick time events, which... I, I don't hate QTEs as much as some people do, but they're, they're pretty obnoxious in this game because you die instantly if you fail them. And then you just reload to the previous checkpoint, which is usually just a few seconds before the QTE. It's like, why, why don't they just not exist if it's going to be this <laughs> this pointless? Bayonetta 2 actually followed that advice. There are no QTEs in Bayonetta 2. And there's a... A thing you can do in the game called a megaton attack where you build up Bayonetta's magic meter and when it's capped out then you can do a torture attack which has a, a special animation for each enemy type and you have to tap a button or rotate the joystick uh, to build up the megaton meter and the only way to cap this meter out and get the maximum damage and the maximum halo rewards out of this is to know it's coming and to already be tapping the button before the meter even shows up on the screen. This is another place where Bayonetta 2 significantly improves on it because you can start tapping after the meter appears and you will cap it out. If you don't already like know that it's coming here, then you're not gonna get the maximum use out of it. It's kind of obnoxious it, the game is really built around you know, knowing exactly what you're doing in advance so it's it's super unfriendly to new players which i think is my my main complaint because again this is the th third time that i've played through this game now and i feel like this is the best time that i've had playing it because i know what i'm doing now <laughs> It recycles areas and bosses a lot. Like, if I have to walk through that freaking village square one more time, <laughs> I think you go back there, like, six times in different versions. Like, you know, just walking back and forth in the level that recycles itself. Uh, then there are, like, dream areas and, like, a version of it that's in the heaven layer. It's, it's really obnoxious just how much crap they recycle in this game. <laughs> There are these challenge portals called Alfheim where you go inside and you have to do something like, you know, like beat a group of enemies within a certain number of attacks or beat them without getting hit. 
Honestly, in Bayonetta 1, I just I outright skipped them because they are so hard. <laughs> I've never finished a single one. And you do get like health upgrades and, and magic upgrades for finishing them, which makes the game even harder for not having them. Yeah, I've referenced this before, uh, how bad the characters are. Like there's <laughs> Cereza is the child I mentioned. I think 50% of her dialogue is saying mummy in the most <laughs> grating tone imaginable. Not even a realistic child and just uh, so obnoxious. And, you know, it's a child in an action game. So, you know, that means there's going to be an escort quest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's nothing compared to Luca, who is apparently a journalist. And in this game, journalist means man who stalks Bayonetta because that is... <laughs> That is his actual job. He he never does a single act of journalism in the entire game. He he's the man who follows Bayonetta around because he thinks Bayonetta killed uh, his father because Luca is a freaking moron and ha with everything that's going on, it takes him most of the game to realize no, Bayonetta did not kill his father. Angels killed his father and Bayonetta tried to stop him. Luca's an idiot. I have no patience for Luca and I I'm frankly crestfallen that he's back in Bayonetta 3 <laughs> I hope he shows up in one scene and gets shot in the head I really do I, I loathe Luca I hate him so much <laughs> and the story is kind of crap too do you even remember what the story is yeah, honestly <laughs> exactly I mean it's so inconsequential it, it's all just a setup to fight angels which is great mm -hmm. I think I think most people who love this game that's what they really focus on mm -hmm. <laughs> they're not paying attention to the story but there's there's something about like these two gems that Bayonetta wants to find because reasons they never really explain <laughs> what the reasons are and she goes off to this city to find them and then angels start attacking her basically then you're just running around the countryside fighting angels and you will forget about the gems until the game suddenly starts talking about them again later on <laughs> This the story is so bad that Bayonetta two actually had to do a little time travel nonsense just to make Bayonetta one story make a little more sense, <laughs> which is really unfortunate for Bayonetta two. That is probably the worst thing about the game is how it feels it has to shoehorn in Bayonetta one stuff just to make that story make a little more sense. But uh, it, it's a game that's all style, no substance. This is where I, I really feel like in my notes that I wrote as I was playing the game and not notes as a result of playing through the game again and writing it after the fact. I, I will give it, there's more substance here than I was giving it credit for because I do think the combat system here actually felt a little better than it did when my replay of Bayonetta 2. Especially building up Bayonetta's magic meter I felt was a lot easier to do in Bayonetta 1. So I was using her torture attacks a lot more there. As I mentioned, you can equip any weapon uh, to her arms or to her legs, and if you hold down a button, then she will continue using that weapon, including if it's a gun. She'll just keep firing it for a few seconds before moving on to the next button press in your combo. And in Bayonetta 1, at least, that is really effective for building up your magic meter. Somehow I didn't discover this until my third playthrough through the game, <laughs> which I, I think was the reason that I, I just enjoyed playing it so much more this time because I, I didn't struggle so much with some of the tougher enemies because I was using my torture attacks a lot more than I have in the past. It's unfortunate that it took me three times for Bayonetta 1 to click with me. Uh, again, I think that's the biggest problem with the game is it's really unfriendly to new players. If I ever have a reason to replay Bayonetta 1 in the future, I'll do it a lot more happily now. I, <laughs> I went into this with my teeth grit. It's like, well, I want to replay Bayonetta 2 before Bayonetta 3 comes out. I guess I better replay Bayonetta 1, and I wasn't real happy about that. But I'm now glad I did, because actually I, I really actually enjoyed Bayonetta 1 quite a bit more this time. I didn't hate it <laughs> this time. Like, If you go back to our... February 2018 episode, maybe it was a March episode, when Bayonetta 1 came out on Switch, I I, I hated this game. I hated it. <laughs> but this time, I'm like, I like it, but it has serious flaws, which is, you know, a huge, a huge improvement for the game. I was just going to mention that it's the only one I've played, and I don't know why. Mm. 
because when the first I played the PS3 version, which I think I've mentioned before, which apparently had loads of issues, that I, it was fine for me. I didn't notice any, but I was obsessed when that game came out. But what year was it when the first one came out? Do you remember? Two thousand nine, two thousand ten, maybe. So I was like 18, oh my god. Um, which explains why I remember being online and being like, Bayonetta could like totally beat Dandy's ass. She's like way cooler and I'd have all these like arguments with people. <laughs> <laughs> and then they actually ca- didn't they actually say like she would totally win in a fight. So I was like, yes, he told you. I, got, I, I just have a vivid memory of playing, I won't spoil it for people, but the, the, there was a control issue with the very last scene at the very end of the game. And I remember like mm. shouting at my TV because for whatever reason it just wasn't doing what I was telling it. You've made me want to replay it now. I don't know if there's um because I know there actually is a physical version of the first one now. I'm hoping that it's not going to be one of those ones that just you know goes out of stock and the resellers are like hey and I don't know why I didn't get two because I got a Wii U so that's weird. Um, No I really really liked the first one. I think I just liked the character. I think it's that's kind of the the main appeal I tried to get into Devil May Cry and I just can't, but I really liked Bayonetta, so, yeah. Yeah, I played the first three Devil May Cry games on PlayStation 2. I actually thought the first two games were pretty bad. Ah. But Devil May Cry 3, actually, I, I do really like that game. I think that ah. one's pretty good. It's got a lot of the same excesses that Bayonetta has, but that's yeah. not surprising. It's from basically the same development team, Yeah. Uh, especially Hideki Kamiya. The first level has a cutscene where Dante surfs on a rocket while eating pizza. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very similar to some of the things Bayonetta gets up to just mm-hmm. without the pizza. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Bayonetta 2, the story in Bayonetta 2 is so much better. Like, it's less convinced of its own like epicness. It's a lot more willing to poke fun at itself. Mm-hmm. Like very early on, Bayonetta has a line where the last Lumen Sage I met rambled on and on for 20 minutes, which was <laughs> definitely referring to one of the final cutscenes in Bayonetta 1 where you finally meet the boss and he just talks and talks and talks like he's the freaking master computer in The Matrix, whatever that guy's name was <laughs> called. <laughs> uh, important note. Bayonetta 2 is technically a Christmas game. The game does open up with Bayonetta Ah. and her sister doing their Christmas shopping uh, when suddenly there's angels attacking the Christmas parade. So you are fighting angels on the back of these jets that are flying around the city. Uh, And it also has much clearer and more immediate stakes with resulting goals. I mentioned in Bayonetta 1 how something, 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 gems, something, something, let's go to Europe and fight angels. Bayonetta 2, uh, during that opening battle, uh, Bayonetta loses control of one of her demonic summons and it kills her sister. So Bayonetta has to go into hell to save her sister's soul. That's great. I mean, (laughs) I immediately know what the stakes are and what we are doing, which was something that I really struggled with in Bayonetta 1. And Luca is still here. He's still useless, but he's only in like two scenes and has like five minutes of screen time, which is way better than Bayonetta 1. (laughs) It's more forgiving on its default difficulty. Fewer enemies have super armor. Like when you hit enemies, they flinch now. Like a lot of the time in Bayonetta 1, if you punch or kick an enemy in the face, they'll keep swinging at you in the middle of their attack. It's really daunting if you've played another game of this style where usually if you hit an enemy, it will make them flinch or stun them or knock them out of their current thing. They're Bayonetta 1. They'll just go, whatever, I'm going to keep attacking you. Uh, There are a lot wider witch time windows, so it's a lot easier to pull those off if you're uh, not real great with your timing. Uh, The lock-on button is now correctly put on the left trigger. Uh, It's still useless. I never really used it, but if you do like to use it, it's a lot easier to use now. As I mentioned, the QTEs are gone. The megaton button mashing is a lot easier to pull off. Uh, there's a new Umbran Climax mode, which you can activate when Bayonetta's magic is capped out. I think this is why they made the magic meter actually a lot harder to build up in 2 versus 1, to keep you from, you know, just constantly being in Umbran Climax mode. The torture attacks are also still here, and I just preferred to use them versus the Umbran Climax mode, but once you activate this, then all of Bayonetta's attacks become summon attacks. They deal a lot more damage. They knock enemies back. They knock them out of their current attacks, even bosses. Uh, it's kind of fun to use, but I, I did feel 
it was kind of easy to let that become a crutch. So I preferred to use my magic for the torture attacks instead, because uh, you also get more halos for doing that. Uh, the challenge portals are back, but instead of going to Alfheim, now you go to Muspelheim, and they're a lot easier. <laughs> I actually finished every single one uh, versus you know the first game in Alfheim where I just skipped them outright because they were too hard. Having played through both of these games now, I do feel both of them would really benefit from a no cutscenes mode where you can just play through the game with the story turned off. That way you can just really focus on that really good combat. That would be my main recommendation. Uh, Bayonetta 2 does have a side mode where you basically just fight enemies on a giant circle in a void, <laughs> which is kind of the same thing, but kind of not at the same time. But if you do want to just do like a challenge mode, Bayonetta 2 has it, whereas Bayonetta 1 kind of didn't, which was disappointing. As I said earlier, like uh, at the end of this replay of the two games, I came out of it liking Bayonetta 1 a little better and liking Bayonetta 2 a little less. And I think the reason I liked Bayonetta 2 a little less was because uh, I didn't hate Bayonetta 1 as much as I did before. Definitely recommend them both now at this point, which I'm very happy to say because before I would have only recommended the sequel. But I think they're both good games now. I'm, I'm happy to have... Had a turnaround on the first game. <laughs> I don't even know if we really need to talk about this. Like, uh, I know this is important to you, Rosalie. Uh, the, uh, no, you don't have to. Well, I mean, there. Let's just get into it. Um, <laughs> there was a controversy, like in the truest sense of the word. Word usually when we say controversy, we just mean a thing happened and people talked about it. No, this was actually a controversy with everything that came out after it. I don't think we need to talk about the controversy now. It's it's time has kind of passed, but the impetus of the controversy, which is that voice actors need to be paid more and recognized more for their important work they do in video games, yeah. does need to be talked about. All the other things that have come out as a result of that discussion do not need to be talked about because they've been talked about to death and no good will come of it. Uh, yeah. So, Rosalie, <laughs> you are in that industry. Why don't you uh, give us your insider perspective? Yeah, I'm not union, though, because, you know, I don't earn enough. I have friends who are who are union and they're based in the States and things, so I kind of hear things. Um, I think a lot of people, I think this applies to any creative industry, especially related to games where people think that you have a cool job so therefore you earn lots of money or something and uh, most people don't and especially voice <laughs> actors like the people who think that game journalists just get free <laughs> games and spend all their time playing video games on a pile of money don't get me yeah started. i no. mean <laughs> it, i i wish that was true <laughs> um especially with voice acting like most of the additions you do you're not gonna get and if you're doing like a AAA game, that could be one of your only gigs for the entire year. Again, don't need to go into it, but people are like, what? I wish I got four grand to do blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but it's different from doing like an, like a, a labor job. You get paid per session and things. It's like different. It's, yeah, it's a whole thing. And Nintendo, I think we talked about it in the past. We're like, yeah, we're here. We love them. But they've themselves been quite bad because I know the reason that Cloud and Sephiroth are still Japanese in Smash Brothers is because the English voice actors wanted union rates and Nintendo were like, nah. <laughs> uh, and that's also why one of the voice actresses that plays the green-haired woman from Kid Icarus, um, she didn't return for Smash either because um, she wanted a union rate and they refused. It seemed like a lot of the characters in Smash Brothers, they used stock recordings from previous games. Yeah, that happens as well because some people just don't want to <laughs> pay people. I'm just glad that people are talking about it. And I'm also, because when video games were taken off with voice acting, voice acting, like if you think about like first Resident Evil and things, it was, it, it was still in very beginner stages. So the direction wasn't good. Sometimes they just got people off the street. It was... A lot of those early games, they, those literally the developers. Doing yeah, exactly. Like in System Shock, the very first System Shock... The developers themselves did the voice acting in that yeah. game. Yeah, I mean, like, it does still yeah. happen. So we've taken a long time to, to like go, like, voice acting is, like, just as 
important and just as you know official as you know the actors that you see in films it's 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 a, requ- a skill that takes years to master you have to go to acting training well you don't have to a lot of the time people still go to acting training you know it's a genuine career and there's definitely been a shift that people they appreciate and they recognize that more which is nice to see I'm, I'm liking that the dialogue is wow we should be looking at this because even I've been learning new things that there was a you get royalties if you do additional voices for television and things but for games that's just not really a thing and I believe that even our devs in any game should get royalties like if you're an artist if you're a game tester you should be I mean there's loads of weird things just the game industry can be a bit behind in a lot of respects for a lot of things like that but I'm glad there's like a positive discussion that's come out of a negative thing and also just to be um NDAs are weird um so it stands for non-disclosure agreement you've probably had to sign one even if you're not in a creative field for whatever reason sometimes voice actors can't say things so don't harass people because you know there's a legal reason why people can't say even the silliest things it's just to protect if you were a huge voice actor and you you know you were auditioning for uh, a Zelda TV show even if you didn't get that job you still can't talk about it because then you're leaking the fact that it exists there's a lot of things like that like even um if you do get a job there's a lot of people that voice for Genshin Impact but they're not allowed to say that they did the role until a specific time has passed even if you go you can obviously hear that they're in it there's a lot NDAs are just weird don't harass voice it because yeah there's a lot of legal things behind the scenes that's kind of i could ramble on for ages so i won't <laughs> so rosalie you've been playing dropsy which just uh, launched on switch i think it's an older yes. pc game you know in yes. the grand scheme of things not that old but you know <laughs> t- t- 2015 so yeah. yeah yeah let's go ahead and tell us about that yeah so i didn't know about the history of it because it was originally started off as like on the something awful forums and people would write in what they wanted to do and it was like a choose your own adventure via the forums which was kind of interesting and that kind of turned into a kick multiple kickstarters but basically you play as dropsy the clown and it's a point and click game and it's self-described as a hug adventure i don't want to give away this the premise because it kind of gives away the story but basically you want to hug everybody that's the kind of the brief explanation it starts off with it there's a big fire in the circus because you know you're a clown uh, and Dropsy's mum passed away in the fire and lots of people blame Dropsy for said fire so the town genuinely that you're kind of walking about in genuinely doesn't like Dropsy also because he's a big freaky clown (laughs) fair enough Uh, when you start the game you're kind of living in the remnants of your circus tent with your dad who looks a bit poorly and you basically walk around um trying to make the characters around you happy so that you can hug them and when you do hug them there's this really cute animation that pops up of dropsy going like yay uh, and then if you actually go back to his little bedroom in the circus tent there's like a child drawing of the character that you hugged on the wall <laughs> every character has their own like drawing that will appear you don't have to get them all but you can um i just thought that was really an adorable incentive what I liked with it is that there's point. A lot of people don't like point and click games for good reasons. You'll have to combine items that seem totally nonsensical, and it's sometimes just that you'd be spending thirty minutes trying things. In uh, this, it's just you find item, you use item on thing, and that's how they should be. Because I much prefer that, and it, in that respect, it feels like a really good entry game for point and click because they kind of simplified it a lot your inventory is in your big clown trousers and he just kind of like pulls them up and you can pick whatever item and sometimes there's like there's a hint system as well that you can toggle on and off so some things will sparkle in the background I just kind of liked that because I get really fed I mean I love Monkey Island but some of the puzzles in Monkey Island are really frustrating and overly complicated but for this yeah they really simplified it it's really cool what's really sets us apart this game doesn't have any dialogue the characters have little speech bubbles that have images in it and you kind of have to like guess the story just from it, it, it's kind of quite obvious like a character will have a there'll be pictures of someone crying so you know they're sad it's it's kind of like that one of the first characters you can can help is a, an old man and he's thinking about a younger 
version of a woman but there's like heartbreak image so you're like well he's sad probably about his wife or something um and that kind of is kind of what hints you you find like a locket and it's got a picture of like someone that looks like him you give that to him and then his speech bubble turns into a happy face and that's kind of your hint that you can now give him a hug and make him happy and add him to your characters that you have hugged (laughs) it it, is funny because obviously you're a clown and they've deliberately made you look absolutely terrifying like you look like something out of american horror story but the character is kind of like um i think it's kind of meant to be inspired of the character from um of mice and men where you're like a big grown-up scary clown but you have the kind of mentality of a child which kind of helps the whole thing of you just wanting to hug everybody and it's quite cute but he's very evidently very risky later on as well it's cool you get joined you have your dog that can go into certain areas and then you're joined by a bird and then a mouse and they can access areas that you can't before so they can and the more you progress you they kind of join your little party and it's just it's just really nice because i thought it'd be spooky because big scary clown but there's literally like a thing where you steal a sandwich to give to a homeless person and it's all about changing people's misconceptions about you because you're a scary clown and just making them happy and it's really it's quite affordable as well i think it's under 10 pounds so it's like a really good entryway into point and clicks that's adorable and makes you feel things and it's funny like if you go into the to save the game next to the save icon there's a fart button for whatever it doesn't do anything apart from make a fart noise (laughs) and you can toggle off like clown chew noises sorry they obviously don't do that because they're really annoying but that's just in the menu for whatever reason uh the only annoying thing is that because it's a point and click on on the switch they didn't kind of toggle the left joystick buttons to like control the character so you still have to drag an icon to click for the person to walk to and that just kind of feels like a bit old school and annoying and I kind of wish you didn't do that because it's on a console it's slightly different but hey ah I liked it it's not as spooky as I thought it was going to be it's just very cute um, and if you're, although if you're scared of clowns, maybe don't play it because he is quite terrifying. Great. I've only seen screenshots of it. So maybe this mm-hmm. is a totally unfair thing to ask about it. But I always just had the uncomfortable impression when I ever saw this game that Dropsy was making fun of people with Down syndrome. Did you ever get that impression while you were playing it? Not specifically that. You could argue that it's kind of inv- like because he's obviously the character is obviously meant to be an adult but acts in a way that would you would assume they were a child hmm. so you could say that it was bad rep for well it could be a number of things um i mean you could just sort of say that with like um something like a spectrum disorder which i feel strongly about because i'm probably on that and waiting to get diagnosed for that it doesn't feel like they're making fun of it through the gameplay it kind of I think it's more just meant to be a trope on the kind of the character I never felt offended by it but it was something that I'd understand if you picked up on but I think the fact the game doesn't have dialogue it also you're making your own assumptions because it's maybe he is just a very tall child it doesn't actually say if he's an adult or a child per se Hmm. um and also there's a lot of like science fiction-y stuff in it so you don't you know you could argue that he's also not even human there's like aliens and all sorts of weird things going on but yeah that would be a good thing just to mention in case someone doesn't want to play it which i totally understand but it doesn't feel like they're punching down or anything when i played it but i think it's just meant to be a play on the trope of that kind of character that's just a bit scared of things he's very sweet and and cute and creepy (laughs) because he's a big scary (laughs) clown so what are we playing in the coming week rosalie we'll start with you i got a code from us i guess um for pac-man world repack that's a mouthful so i will be finally trying to finish that and I'm going to be playing Bayonetta 3 as it's out next Friday. You know, hopefully uh-huh. I get it on time. And Toby? <laughs> also the same. Um, I'm picking mine up because uh-huh. I just don't trust shipping for... <sighs> well, it was uh, Xenoblade 3 that got shipped to the other side of Australia before it arrived. <laughs> oh, no. It went on an adventure. <laughs> yeah. So this time I figure I'll just pick it up in a store. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I wish it was convenient for me to do that. With the economy. <laughs> Dang economy. <laughs> like, literally, all the game stores around me closed. Like, I, I always went to, uh-huh. like, game specialty stores to buy my games, but they've all closed. <laughs> so, it's like, okay. I don't like ordering everything from Amazon, but it's literally the only convenient way I can get them versus driving hours out of my way. It sucks, but... (laughs) Dang economy? Okay. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of In Focus. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us get noticed. You can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify and other podcast services. Make sure to check out our sister shows, PlayState and Power of X. And be sure to join our Discord server to interact with the lively GamePodular community. Follow us on Twitter, YouTube and at GamePodular.com for updates, news and other content. Links are in the show notes. If you'd like to support our shows, you can buy us a coffee or become a GamePodular patron. The details for both things are on our website. Thanks. This episode was edited by Andrew and you can follow them at Play Critically or read their long-form reviews at playcritically.com. You can also follow Sylvia at stw2 or at twitch.tv slash torystw or you can follow me, Rosalie, at Lil Record Girl. <laughs>